Lord, as Jim comes to preach your word to us, we ask that you would make us ready to receive it. Would you give us listening ears, minds that are focused and thinking and hearts ready to be changed by your words as your spirit works in us. We pray for Jim particularly. We trust that you've been at work in him as he's been preparing. Would you continue that work and speak through him? Speak to our hearts through what Jim has to share. Amen. Great. Well, if you have a Bible, friends, do open it again, please, to Romans chapter 3. Those verses that Wayne read for us. Romans chapter 3, if you're on the Church Bible, that's page 1130. 1130, Romans chapter 3. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, well, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news for you. It's kind of a scenario that although there is an uncomfortable truth coming... There's some light at the end of the tunnel. There's a balancing positive announcement. So bad news, your team lost the match. Good news, you were the best player on the pitch. Bad news, no one knows when the new Taylor Swift album's coming. Good news, she's released her brilliant single Me to sustain you until that day happens. Bad news, you're confused and frustrated by the political turmoil around Brexit, whichever side you voted for. Good news, so is everybody else, (laughs) especially Theresa May. Now, those are silly examples, but of course the news can be more serious. That's the case when we land in Romans chapter 3 this afternoon. See, all the way through from Romans chapter 1, Paul has been giving us bad news. Bad news. By nature, each one of us, Jew, Gentile, religious irreligious, legalist or libertine is deeply, truly, really guilty before God. We've not honoured him as God. We've tried to make our own way in this world without thought for him. We don't thank him for the good gifts he gives us. We deny his existence. We question his character. We think he's hiding from us, but in reality we're hiding from him. We're rebels against our creator. We worship other things instead of the true God. Bad news. And God is not pleased. He responds to that human rebellion with his settled, deliberate, wholly appropriate, holy wrath. His settled, holy hostility to all that defies him. And that wrath is being revealed now in an ongoing, dynamic way. And yet there is the sobering prospect, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, of a day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, we're accountable to God. And we're facing his just condemnation. And there is nothing that we can do to improve the situation To try to impress God with our moral performance just reveals how far we've wandered. It's just like trying to stick a plaster over a gaping wound. Bad news. Now, why does Paul spend so long rehearsing bad news? Is he just down on human nature? Is he trying to make us feel bad about ourselves? No, he is realistic about human nature. He's honest about what we're really like deep down beneath our civilised layers. He's like a good doctor. 
So if you've broken your arm and you go to the GP, you want the correct diagnosis from the expert, don't you? So that they can prescribe the right solution and remedy. If you've broken your arm, you don't want to go to the GP and then diagnose you with hay fever and give you antihistamines. No, you want your arm put in plaster. Any other diagnosis and remedy won't deal with the real problem. And that's why Paul spends so long rightly diagnosing our human condition. It, it is bad news. But it is done in love. So that he can show us the brilliant remedy to our awful situation. Because yes, there is bad news. But there is also good news. See, good news that against this black backdrop, God has acted to rescue us from being under his wrath in a way that upholds his moral character. God has worked to save us. God has done what we were powerless to do. Good news. God finds a way to righteously declare righteous the unrighteous. Jesus has come to deliver us through his life, through his death his conquering resurrection and Paul drills into the heart of this good news in the verses we're looking at today Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through to 26 now confession time I've always avoided speaking on these verses because quite frankly they intimidate me they're dense verses aren't they even if you've read them before it's easy to get a bit lost as Paul piles up truth upon truth idea upon idea So why look at these verses today? Well, as Wayne mentioned, we're starting a series working through some of the biblical basis that underpins our church ministry and mission document. And that statement expresses our heart as a church to be a gospel-hearted church. A gospel-hearted church. But that should make us ask, why should everything in our Christian lives and our church life revolve around the gospel like the planets revolve around the sun? Why should everything about us revolve around the good news of what God has done for us in and through Jesus? Headline answer. See, the gospel is the brilliant news how God has acted to save us. The brilliant news that we and every single person in Kenilworth, in school and out of school, needs to hear. The gospel is God's power to uh, to save us. That's what we're thinking about this week. Next week, we'll think about the companion truth. The gospel is God's power to change us as well. And to think about that, we're going to drill, as I say, into Romans chapter 3. Now, uh, Martin Luther, he's behind me on uh, on the screen, uh, was one of the greatest minds in the Christian church. He lived in the 1500s, and he once wrote about these verses in chapter 3 of Romans, that they are the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Wow, thanks, Martin. No pressure there, then. I've got 20 minutes to do the whole Bible for us. But he's saying, if you get the the thrust of these verses, you get the main line of the Bible's story. Think of Romans chapter 3 as a bit like climbing a big mountain. Okay, you're going to need to put some effort in. It's not an easy climb, but the views at the top are breathtaking. So my prayer today, friends, is that we'll climb Mount Romans chapter 3 together. Make it safe to the top. So we can bask in the views we're going to see there of our brilliant God and his brilliant gospel. So I hope you're with me. Let's get our climbing boots on. Let's set out. 
and see, first of all, that we should be gospel-hearted. Because in the gospel, a new revelation of God's righteousness comes to us. The gospel is a new revelation of God's righteousness. Look at verse 21. Paul says, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. See, Paul's saying in the gospel, God's righteousness, God's saving disposition and activity on behalf of his people, God's perfect character, perfect commitment to keep his promises has been revealed in a new way. This revelation doesn't come through the law, through the Old Testament way that God related to his people, good as it was for that time. But this righteousness is revealed in a new way. There's been a decisive change in the situation. A new age has dawned now that Jesus has entered our world. A new revelation of righteousness. But Paul wants us to understand that although it's a new revelation, it was nonetheless anticipated for those who had ears to hear. Again, look at verse 21. It is a righteousness to which the law and the prophets testify. The shorthand for the Old Testament part of the Bible. It witnessed, it, it pointed forward. So there was anticipated a new revelation of God's righteousness. And that's what's happened with the gospel, a new revelation of God's righteousness. So friends, you see, all the way through the Old Testament story, we're being pointed forward, pointed beyond the structure of Israel to see the promise that one day, God would fulfill and bring together all those Old Testament hopes in something that stood in line with what had gone before, but was bigger, better, and more wonderful than anyone could ever fully imagine. Think of the Old Testament a bit like a road sign, pointing beyond itself, leading us to the final destination. A destination that we're sure to arrive at if we follow the direction. And Paul's saying that now, if we live after the coming of Jesus, we live in a time of fulfilment. You see, the new revelation of God's righteousness has burst on the stage of history in the person of Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, in his death and in his resurrection. So when we read the Old Testament part of the Bible today, we're reading it as part of our Christian Bible. It is written for us. It points us forward to the coming of Jesus. It gives us language and concepts and ideas that Jesus fulfills. See, we're really privileged to live when we do. We're not living in the age of promise, good as that was, just looking forward to something. No, we're living in the age of fulfillment after God's revelation of Jesus has burst into our world, which is even better. We need to be gospel-hearted as a church because the gospel, firstly, is a new revelation of God's righteousness. A new revelation of God's righteousness. But secondly, we need to be gospel-hearted because this new revelation of righteousness is available to all who believe. This revelation of righteousness is now available, Paul says, to all who believe. See, Paul tells us here that this righteousness now is a status that God not just shows when he acts but he offers to us if we believe in him to put us right with himself to put us at peace with the one we're uh, dislocated from to help us to relate rightly to him given what we saw in Romans 1 to 3 we desperately need this don't we we are unrighteous and God is angry 
But now the new revelation of God's righteousness means that anyone can receive it. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. This righteousness, we read, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul makes a number of moves here that we just need to note. Move number one. Everyone is a sinner by nature. All of us, Paul says, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are born in Adam. We're born hostile to God, turned away from him and turned in on ourselves. All of us have marred God's image in us and failed to glorify him as we should. But move number two, since that's the case, actually it's good news, ironically, because now everyone can be saved in the same way. You see, there's not one path of salvation open to religious people, like the Jews of Paul's day, and another path open to us who aren't religious, like the Gentiles of Paul's day. No, there's only one way to be saved, whatever background you're from, regardless of your moral performance and your spiritual track record. Righteousness, we read, verse 22, is given as a free gift to all who believe, to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that means, very simply, we can be declared right with God through faith in Jesus, whether we know lots about the Bible, or whether we know comparatively little about the Bible, or whether we grew up in a religious home, or a home where God was banned as a topic of conversation. Whether we grew up in a country with a Christian heritage, or a country that had no Christian heritage at all. It doesn't matter anymore. It's brilliant news. It's all a matter of faith and trust and belief in Jesus. And that means the gospel is profoundly inclusive. See, being made right with God is not a matter of our intellect. Otherwise, those of us who struggle to, to find thinking enjoyable might be at a bit of a disadvantage. It's not a matter of upbringing. Otherwise, those of us who come from the wrong background might be at a disadvantage. It's not about moral performance, because otherwise those of us who have struggles in this area might be at a disadvantage. It is a matter of faith, of believing and trusting ourselves to Jesus, so that we might receive this righteousness. That means we can give up our silly attempts to try and impress God with our moral efforts. The truth is we can't be righteous by doing things. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe, not who do things. We're justified freely by his grace. There are binary opposites. It's grace, not merit. It is faith, not works. And you can't merge them. But recognising this righteousness is available to all of us who believe stops us becoming proud when we think we're doing well spiritually and others aren't. And it stops us being crushed when we realise we're not doing well spiritually and other people are. See, we can rest secure in Jesus, relying on him. Righteousness is given to all who believe. So what are you relying on today to make you right with God? It's either Jesus or it's someone or something else. The only sane answer in light of our unrighteousness and God's wrath 
is to rely fully, finally and forever on Jesus. But that is possible for each one of us. Because the gospel reveals righteousness offered to all who believe. It's not beyond any of us. It is a new revelation of God's righteousness available to all who believe. That's the second reason why we should be gospel-hearted as a church. The third reason why we should be gospel-hearted is that the new revelation of God's righteousness available to all who believe is centred on all that Jesus has done for us. It's centred on all that Jesus has done for us. Because maybe you're tracking with me so far, but you're going, all right, I'm with you, but, but I've got some questions. How is all this possible? How can God declare us righteous when we're not righteous? How can God gift righteousness as a gift to everyone on the basis of faith in Jesus? That doesn't sound right. That sounds wrong. Well, we can be gospel-hearted because the gospel centred on all that God has done for us in Jesus, where we find the answers to those brilliant questions. Let's look at what Paul says. Firstly, he says that Jesus has redeemed us. Look at verse 24. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We're redeemed by Jesus. What does that mean? The basic idea of redemption is paying a ransom price to deliver someone from slavery. It's a word with a long Bible heritage. Think back to the people of Israel being redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Think Prince of Egypt, plagues and Passover, that helps. You see, through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, we can be brought back, set free, liberated from our captivity to sin and death. See, because Jesus has shed his costly blood to set us free, to pay that ransom, to liberate us, we can be, Paul says, justified freely by God's grace. See, we can be declared right with God because Jesus has paid the price for our sins. He has redeemed us. Jesus has redeemed us. But second, note what Paul also says, verse 25. God, we read here, verse 25, has presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Again, what does that mean? Well, the basic idea here is of God presenting Jesus as a propitiation, as a substitute, as a sacrifice who can turn away God's wrath from us by exhausting it himself. And again, think about that. That's a word with a long Bible heritage. Think back to all the Old Testament sacrifices that God gave his people. See, we're being told that when Jesus died, when his blood was shed, God was pleased in his infinite love to lay our sin on Jesus and to punish him in our place. See, when Jesus died, he faced the wrath of God for our sin. He died our cursed death. He endured the judgment that was ours by right. See, when Jesus died, God shows that he can't just forget about his wrath or, or sweep human rebellion under the carpet like it's no big deal. No, he must punish. But he also reveals a gracious way so that we can be delivered from that wrath because Jesus endures it in our place. 
he reveals to us that God can now declare us righteous. Our sins credited to Jesus and Jesus' perfect record of obedience with the Father credited to us. A gift freely given today to all who believe in Jesus, our Lord, our living Saviour, who died and who rose again. Think of it as a marriage. Imagine a rich young prince, the wealth of a kingdom at his disposal. He has everything he could ever want. Or imagine he falls in love with a lowly girl from an impoverished background who has multiple debts and creditors standing against her. If, if they get married, what happens? Well, the prince takes all those great debts and he makes them his own. He pays for them. He wipes them out because of his wealth, riches and abundance. And the girl now takes on all his riches. She belongs in the palace. She's wealthier than she's ever imagined. Everything she could ever want is now hers. So it is with faith. The wedding ring that joins us to Jesus. See, we're now by faith so joined to Jesus that he takes all our guilt, our sin and our condemnation on himself. He pays for it at the cross fully for us. And now through our union and connection to him, we receive from him blessing and abundance and righteousness. Due to this marriage between Jesus and his people, he can be the sacrifice of atonement. He can bear our sins. He can face the wrath of God in our place, exhausting it for us. So that now we can be sure, utterly confident, there is no wrath left for us. Because Jesus has borne it all. I think these beautiful truths are most helpfully often expressed in song. So in words we'll end our service with in just a few moments. We're going to sing, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Or other words, complete atonement you have made and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace. Or in words we sang earlier, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upwards, I look and see him there. He made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, truly, as Christians, we are alive in him, our living head, and clothed in righteousness, divine. See, these are truths to be sung, truths to be celebrated, truths to be felt deep down in life-transforming and joy-giving ways. So why not just pick one of those songs? I can give you the references afterwards and use it in your quiet time this week. Why not spend some time singing and celebrating to God as you open the Bible and pray to him each day to encourage your head and your heart with these truths? 
Truths that explain why the gospel is so amazing. Truths that explain why we should be gospel-hearted. The gospel announces a new revelation of God's righteousness, available to all who believe, centred on all that Jesus has done for us. That's the third reason we should be gospel-hearted. The fourth and final reason from these verses why we should be gospel-hearted is that in the gospel, a new revelation of God's righteousness is revealed, available to all who believe, centred on all that God has done for us in Jesus, so that God's justice is upheld. Look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this, we read, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. So at the present time, so as uh, righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, Paul says that what God has done for us in Jesus displays and upholds his righteousness. Interesting, isn't it? Upholds God's righteous character, his, his moral integrity, his justice. Paul suggests that was necessary because in some way God had passed over exercising the full force of his righteous wrath against the sin of his people in times past. Yes, of course, God did discipline and act against Israel for their sins. Think of them being exiled, for example, if you know the Old Testament story. But, but those punishments were always partial. We read here, God in his forbearance had somehow in his divine character left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But no more. The full weight of God's justice poured out on Jesus in our place. See, God demonstrates once for all, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is just, that sin matters, that he is the judge to whom all are accountable. The cross shows us God's justice, and so how God can both vindicate himself as just, and yet be the one who justifies us, who have faith in Jesus. God displays his justice at the cross. Sin is punished. But we're also declared right. Jesus dies in our place. He takes our sin on himself. He bears the wrath. And he shares his perfect record of obedience with the Father. Uh, before the Father. With us. He demonstrates God's justice. Now, of, of course, we, we know the cross also shows us God's deep and staggering free love. Let's not be in any doubt about that. But it is interesting that's not what Paul says here. He says it demonstrates God's justice. Why isn't that interesting? See, that reminds me, the cross isn't ultimately about me, about my situation and need. Oh, it has wonderful implications for me, for my situation and need, but it is not ultimately about me. It's ultimately about God demonstrating his character. So let's not sentimentalise the cross and forget this Godward perspective. The cross is about God establishing and upholding his character, especially his justice. And I find that so encouraging because it seems to me that wherever we look today, there's injustice. People being discriminated against unfairly. Everyday sexism, casual racism. 
faceless corporations exploiting workers to get the maximum profit. People trafficked for sex whose dignity is destroyed. Livelihoods in developing countries put at risk because of overconsumption in the West. The unaccountability of those who seem to influence our culture. Lenient sentences for horrible crimes. It seems that justice is often a sadly lacking commodity in our world today. So how good to look back to the cross to see that that demonstrates unequivocally God's justice. Which gives us great hope that we can trust God to be just, to do right, to see justice done in our world. Supremely on that final day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. See, wrongs will be righted. Injustice will be called to account. The cross guarantees it. That is great news for us personally, for our society, for our world. We should be gospel-hearted because the gospel means God's justice is upheld. So how are we doing, having climbed Mount Romans 3 today? Maybe you're like me, you're a bit out of breath, conscious how far you need to go. But hopefully we've made it relatively unscathed to the top. And we can just begin to appreciate something of the wonderful views afforded to us here. Views of a majestic, just, loving God. Views of his stunning gospel. It's no wonder Paul opens a letter to the Romans by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. May that be our conviction individually, to not be ashamed of the gospel. May that be our conviction as a church moving forward, as Kenilworth Community Church, to never be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is God's power to save. It is a revelation of God's righteousness that is new, available to all who believe, centred on all that Jesus has done for us, so that God's justice is upheld. Friends, let's take this gospel into our hearts. Let's take it out into our communities, out into our world. Let's pray and ask God's help to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these wonderful and yet stretching words we've read and considered together this afternoon. Thank you for the insight the Apostle Paul gives here as your spirit stirred him and enabled him to write such powerful and transforming truths. Truths that testified and bore witness to all that you have done for us in Jesus. Father, please give us ears to hear what you are saying, we pray. Please help us to celebrate the gospel, to be gospel-hearted individually and together as a church family as we move forward. Because we're persuaded the gospel is something new and beautiful and stunning for our world. A new revelation of your righteousness. The gospel is something wonderful because it offers righteousness to all who believe, irrespective of gender and ethnicity and intellect and background and culture and class and whatever other categories we could think of. Righteousness available to all who simply believe. Thank you that is possible because it's all centered on what you have done for us in Jesus. Jesus, our redemption. Jesus, our propitiation. Thank you that he is our righteousness. I thank you that you act wonderfully in Jesus, ultimately to disclose and uphold your perfections, your righteousness, your character. 
Lord, humble us with these things. May we be comforted to have meditated upon them this afternoon. And help us to be gospel-hearted, we pray, moving forward, celebrating deeply and truly all that you've done for us in Jesus, the standing that gives us, and the revelation of your character, we pray. To you be the glory, we ask. Amen. As we're going to stand and sing in response to God's word, uh, a hymn that uh, I quoted from uh, in the sermon, In Christ Alone, really trying to draw together the themes and threads of Romans 3. In Christ alone our hope is, because it's about belief in him, in all that he's done for us, in his life-giving death, his sin-bearing death, and his powerful resurrection, his work today. Let's stand and sing and celebrate our Lord Jesus, and then Wayne will bring us into land after we've sung together. Thank you.